0: Welcome to the AJP Heart and Sark Podcast. I'm Cara hansel kehan Today we'll discuss a new study by Jing, Zhu and Susan Steinberg titled Trypsin Cleavage of the Beta-1 Adrenergic Receptor. This article was published on March 1, 2022. Joining me today are associate editor Jonathan Kirk, lead author Susan Steinberg, and content expert Michael Kapiloff. Let's get started. Thanks, Cara, for that introduction. When I uh, first read this paper, I was I was really excited. This is, this is a rapid report, and this is exactly the type of paper that the rapid reports were made for just a couple of really impactful, exciting findings that are going to have uh, sort of reverberating consequences. And and this study here from these two, again, and I also love it, It's just these two authors, uh, is, is really an elegant study finding these novel mechanisms that they're going to be impactful. But before we get into uh, what, what was found here in the study, Susan, could you give us a little bit of background on why you set out to look at beta-1 adrenergic receptor cleavage?
1: Sure. And I agree, this report for us was kind of a teaser in terms of where we want to go and the implications of this. So this whole line of investigation really is in the outgrowth of an observation that we made over 20 years ago. We were interested in beta receptor subtype actions in cardiomyocytes, and we found certain differences in their signaling phenotypes That suggested that they might compartmentalize differently in the cell. And so we were using immunoblot analysis to look at differences in their cell surface distribution between caviolar and non-caviolar membranes. We found differences to address the question that we were looking at, but a side observation at the time was that when we immunoblotted for the beta-2 adrenergic receptor, we saw a single band whose mobility corresponded to the molecular weight of the beta-2 adrenergic receptor. When we blotted for the beta-1 receptor, we found two molecular species. And because we did this in some experiments with receptors that we had expressed that had tags at the N and C terminus, it was clear that the larger band was a full-length receptor And the smaller band lacked the N-terminal epitope. It was an N-terminally cleaved receptor. That observation was put on the back burner all those years ago. It wasn't pursued because basically I was clueless as to the candidate mechanisms that could do this and what its significance was. But that changed over the last few years with the identification of mechanisms for ectodomain shedding for other receptors, not necessarily GPCRs, but various mechanisms that we might entertain. And so we revisited this issue. And over the past five years, we have published a series of papers that identify the major N-terminal cleavage site that's responsible for converting the full-length receptor to an N-terminally cleaved receptor. We found some interesting biochemical regulation of this phenomenon that goes outside the scope of what we're talking about today. But we found that the enzyme that does this maturational processing of the receptor is a member of the matrix metalloproteinase family of enzymes, and specifically ADAM17 or TASE, TNF-alpha-converting enzyme. As interesting as that biochemical characterization might be from an academic standpoint, the real impact of that observation was the fact that this cleavage has functional consequences. So the N-terminally cleaved receptor is signaling competent. The ligand binding pocket is still there. The receptor can bind um, ligand, but N-terminal truncation changes the signaling phenotype. The n truncated receptor shows altered bias to the cyclic AMP and ERCMAP kinase pathway, and only the N-terminally truncated form of the receptor constitutively activates a GI-dependent pertussis toxin-sensitive pathway that leads to the activation of the survival kinase, AKT, and it confers protection against doxorubicin-dependent apoptosis and cardiomyocytes. The impetus for this rapid report was the observation that this major cleavage site on the beta-receptor N-terminus, the site cleaved by adam 17 conforms to a trypsin consensus cleavage motif. And that intrigued me because years ago when we were blotting receptor and we had blotted beta-1 receptor in adult cardiomyocytes that had been acutely isolated from a ventricular uh, tissue preparation, and those protocols typically, those protocols use trypsin to isolate the cells. What we found is that the receptor had undergone a limited proteolysis. So basically, the rationale for this paper was to test the hypothesis that trypsin, this enzyme that's used in isolating cardiomyocytes for many of the studies done in the literature, cleaves the beta-1 receptor, and it cleaves it at this consensus cleavage site on the N-terminus. And that was our notion going into the study.
0: And you did this then, you, you addressed this question in both um, CHO cells and in, in cardiomyocytes. Can you go ahead and, and take us through the, the, the major findings that you reported in this manuscript?
1: Sure. So we started out um, looking at the beta receptor expressed in Chinese hamster ovary cells or CHO cells. And what we found is that when the cells that express the beta-1 receptor were exposed to trypsin, there was cleavage of the full-length form of the receptor, not the truncated form. And we used mutagenesis strategies to map the cleavage site. And we found indeed that cleavage was at this consensus cleavage site that typically is cleaved um, by ADAM17 during maturational processing. It's the same site. Obviously that was very dissatisfying, but one wants to look at this in a physiologically more relevant context. So we did the same experiment in neonatal rat cardiomyocytes. And to our surprise, the same type of protocol, trypsin exposure to a cardiomyocyte that has the beta-1 receptor, led to cleavage of both the full length and the N-terminally cleaved forms of the receptor in association with the appearance of N and C-terminal fragments. And the size of these fragments which together would add up to the size of a full-length receptor, suggested that the cleavage by trypsin was occurring at an intramolecular site and specifically a site in extracellular loop 2. The extracellular loop 2 is the largest extracellular loop on the beta-1 receptor. And we speculate that this cleavage, because we didn't map it, but this cleavage, could be at a pair of evolutionarily conserved arginine residues that are adjacent to the disulfide bond-forming cysteine at the tip of extracellular loop 2. Obviously, these two different modes of cleavage from a functional standpoint have totally different implications. A cleavage of the N-terminus would be predicted to result in a receptor- species that, like the truncated receptor that we express in cells, has alterations in its signaling to the cyclic AMP versus ERK-MAP kinase pathway and would be cardioprotective. I equivocate a bit on that because what we know of signaling by the truncated receptor is from studies that express a truncated receptor that presumably makes it to the surface membrane, but might be in different um, intracellular localizations. The cleaved receptor that is formed as a result of an enzyme cleaving the full-length receptor on the cell surface only has a cell surface distribution. Would their signaling properties be identical? Might they be different? that needs to be tested. The phenotype of a cleavage that occurs in the cardiomyocyte clearly has one endpoint. And that is you wind up cleaving the receptor so that you disrupt the ligand binding pocket and you have a signaling incompetent receptor. You have a defect in catecholamine responsiveness. So these would have totally different implications.
0: Michael, as somebody whose lab has studied a lot of these downstream signaling pathways uh, from the receptor, uh, what were your thoughts when you saw this paper uh, and and the implications for both your own work as well as the larger cardiovascular field?
2: I have to say, I, I too was incredibly excited by this because it's a incredibly novel mechanism for regulation of beta receptors. Taking a step back, we should remind ourselves that the beta adrenergic receptors are the prototypical G-protein couple receptors. And beta receptors are our first-line target for heart failure. I mean, beta blockers are one of the most commonly prescribed drugs, and they remain one of the most important self-service receptors in the cardiac myocyte. What's remarkable about Susan's work is that she's really talking about a beta-1-specific regulatory mechanism. So just to remind everyone, people tend to lump together beta-1 and beta-2 receptors. And in fact, most of the structural work was done mainly with beta-2s because of their conservation. And yet they have these different extracellular domains and they have different phosphorylation sites on their intracellular C-terminal tail. And it's the beta-1 receptor that's when overexpressed in transgenic mice that actually lends towards heart failure where the beta-2 is thought to be protective. So we have these dis- distinct differences that actually, you know, convey also to compartmentalization and where the where they're found. So the beta, um, Slava Nikolaev and, and Julia Garlick showed that beta-1 receptors are found throughout the cardiac myocyte, while beta-2s are more restricted to deep transverse tubules and relocate during heart failure. So when we start talking about mechanisms for how beta-1 receptors are differentially regulated and maybe regulated by cleavage and other mechanisms. It starts to get to what is it about the beta-1 receptor that conveys its special purpose in heart failure, what lends itself to um, leading to apoptosis when we think of the beta-2 receptor as being more protective. Um, There's a lot of research coming out now about the fact that uh, the beta-1 adrenergic receptor is not simply on the cell membrane, but maybe present intracellular sites, including my favorite site, the nuclear envelope. It'll be really fascinating to find out um, where these mechanisms are taking place? Is the function of the cleavage something that's unique to uh, receptors that are facing um, the extracellular matrix? I mean, I, I think the implications are dramatic. And it also, as pointed out by Susan's work, um, it starts to explain why carvedilol is a particularly useful drug. And, and in fact, maybe Susan can, uh, can comment on that a little bit about how this cleavage may give us insight into how carvedilol turns out to be a particularly useful drug.
1: I'm not entirely sure that I can give you insight about how Carvedalol influences the cleavage, but we do have studies where we've looked at Carvedalol's regulation of these different molecular species of the receptor. And without, and and those are the outgrowth of studies where we were trying to understand the major features that regulate beta receptor, the beta-1 receptor levels in the context of various things associated with heart failure. And, And in that study, we were interested in oxidative stress. Part of the rationale for going down that route, as Michael said, is that while typically mechanisms for regulation of the beta receptor focus on desensitization mechanisms. The beta-2 receptor, if it's exposed to agonist, undergoes the classical desensitization. In heart failure, we see a decrease in beta-1 receptor and not beta-2. And the literature tends to without worrying too much about it, attributed to desensitization. The problem is that the beta-1 receptor does not have those sites on the intracellular surface for phosphorylation by um, GRK, arrestin binding, all of that. It doesn't undergo desensitization terribly well. What we found is that imposing oxidative stress on a cardiomyocyte in the form of peroxide or doxorubicin leads to a loss of beta-1 receptor. That does not affect the beta-2 receptor. It's specific for the beta-1. And carvanol will rescue that effect. And this has nothing to do with any action of carvanol to mitigate the oxidative stress. And we carefully looked at that. And carvanol has this added effect to increase the abundance of this cardioprotective and terminally truncated form. And we don't know the mechanism for it, but it's very, very striking. It may be acting like a chaperone that we've speculated, stabilizing the receptor, but Carvedilol will have that effect. Um, so, so that is one aspect of the, the, the regulation that we focused on. This study actually starts to ask a question about another aspect of beta receptor regulation in heart failure models. Again, the beta-1 receptor is not, under, is not decreasing because of desensitization. We looked at trypsin in this study because historically we noted that it might have an effect um, in the context of experiments that we all do in the laboratory. And so part of our take-home message from this study is that experiments that interrogate beta-1 receptor-dependent mechanisms and acutely isolated cardiomyocytes need to be interpreted with caution in the context of this finding. But this sets the stage for asking the question whether other inflammatory proteases, trypsin is a GI enzyme. It's not going to be in the heart under physiologic or pathophysiologic conditions. But in the context of myocardial inflammation or myocardial infarction, where you have inflammatory cells, there are quite a number of inflammatory enzymes that are elaborated. And this sets the stage for asking the question whether this proteolytic regulation is an aspect of how the beta-1 receptor is regulated in the context of heart failure. Again, this is a mechanism that we have found for the beta-1. To the extent that we've looked, the beta-2 receptor is not regulated through this mechanism.
0: Susan, you touched on something there uh, that I thought was almost kind of as, as important as the physiological mechanisms that you've identified here, is the sort of uh, technical aspect, right? Which is, uh, as you said, people use trypsin to, to isolate cardiomyocytes and then uh, to study uh, beta receptor signaling. And as you said, it's, it'll be important for, for us to interpret those with caution. But it also adds in an additional complication factor, which maybe we need to talk shop here a little bit, that the Santa Cruz beta-1 receptor antibody no longer being available how would you suggest investigators start to untangle this complicating factor from their own work? Do you have any sort of, I guess, words of advice?
1: There's more than one way to assess the beta-1 receptor and its integrity. We have been doing studies where, in considering the endogenous receptor in the cardiomyocyte, We can do these interventions and see if we still have a receptor that can activate cyclic AMP. If we've disrupted that signaling response, we can infer that the receptor has been cleaved the way it is in the overexpression model where we're tracking um, directly tracking the receptor. And so that's kind of the strategy that we have adopted to address that issue.
2: I would put a note of caution out there to people who say, oh, cyclic AMP PK signaling is downregulated in heart failure, because now that we know that PK signaling is highly compartmentalized, for example, our own work shows that if you, uh, in my lab, that if you deplete PK binding to MACAP perinuclear signalosomes, signal you will block hypertrophy. So I think it's probably more appropriate to say that certain PK dependent processes are downregulated in heart failure, while other processes may in fact be activated and that you really need to start looking compartment by compartment instead of just talking globally about what happens with total cyclic A or PKA. And I suspect the same thing will be true with beta adrenergic signaling. And it sounds like particularly the beta one where we may very well be seeing different forms of uh, cleaved products and such.
1: And I would carry that a step further. Much of the work on beta receptors tends to be done in model cell systems with an experiment added on to say, oh yeah, it happens in myocytes too. And some experiment, but not necessarily the entire validation study. How we got into this in the first place was that the subtypes had different regulatory mechanisms vis-a-vis their signaling that we found in cardiomyocytes that were not preserved in a model cell type. This paper shows different regulation in a CHO cell and a cardiomyocyte. And the note of caution is that, um, as you're saying, Michael, the things that you're finding in terms of nuclear signaling, compartmentalized signaling, I suspect that those mechanisms will not be preserved or identical in model cell systems where many laboratories and investigators, you know, tend to go. Certainly, these are easier systems to study. And ultimately, the goal is to generate mouse models where we can knock in tags, carefully putting them someplace where they're not going to disrupt signaling in any specific way or modify signaling. And then use that as a handle to understand what a truncated receptor would do, where it goes, how it functions, what a cleavage resistant receptor does. To figure out how these species act differently and how they act differently is going to, I suspect, include their differences in localization, their differences in binding to various binding partners and activating pathways. And even these may act differently depending on whether the same molecular species is on the surface or is in a nuclear compartment. But you're going to identify that specificity in a cardiomyocyte. I don't think that specificity is going to be retained with fidelity in model cell types.
2: You know, one of the things we talk a lot about in our lab are the utility of neonatal versus adult myocytes. It's very clear that neonatal and adult ventricular myocytes are quite different. Um, neonatal myocytes can go through around a round of division. They are polygonal. They're not columnar in shape. We know that compartmentalization of calcium signaling is different between, and calcinurin signaling is different between neonatal adult myocytes. I tend to think of the neonatal myocyte as more similar to an adult myocyte from heart failure because... We know that adult myocytes lose some of their T-tubular structure during heart failure, and a neonatal myocyte has a much more rudimentary T-tubular structure. So the two systems are very complementary. It'll be very interesting to see, as you say, whether we go in vivo um, with mice or whether we translate to adult myocytes, you know, how these systems are uh, regulated, either similarly or differently. It, you know, one of, the, one of the questions that I think about with this cleavage, uh, the issue technically, um, Susan, maybe you can give us some light on this, is... How long does it take if if you use trypsin or if you use other uh, proteases to make your adult my, uh, your ventricular myocyte preps, how long do you need to wait before you might get back to some sort of normal baseline, or is that prohibitive given the turnover time of beta receptors?
1: I don't know that we have specific information on the turnover of beta one receptor protein. There's a fair amount of information on mRNA, but not necessarily protein. Certainly, when we culture neonatal cardiomyocytes, which have seen trypsin when they're isolated, by two days later in culture, you have a full-length receptor. If we're expressing, you can see expressed receptor. So the, you know, over the hours to day or two, you're certainly going to refresh the, the receptor. Um, this happens rapidly um, in terms of the cleavage, but um, with new receptor synthesis, over the course of a day or two, you will see it. Um, More specific, I don't think there's any data in the literature to address that, and we certainly haven't looked.
0: Michael, Susan, uh, thank you both for joining us today and to talk about this recent paper from Susan's lab with possibly translational, clinical, physiological, and technical implications for the field. Like I said, a real rationale for the rapid report format at AJP Heart and Circulatory Physiology. And if, as, as Susan said, this is in some ways a teaser for work that is coming soon, we are definitely looking forward to, to that work and may have a podcast in the future on that as well. So again, thank you very much both for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Circ podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJPHeart.